Uh, it's a good start for a sermon, right? That everybody at least start out awake. Um, good morning. I'm Joe. Um, welcome to Chillicothe Bible Church. Um, I'd, l- I'd like to take us into the Word of God here for f- the next few minutes. We're going to be in the book of Philippians. Um, uh, if you uh, look at your New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and then you remember Gentiles eat pork chops, right? Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? All right, that's how I teach it to my kids. All right, um, as we get into Philippians here this morning, um, I want to just by way of introduction. I'll tell you a little story. Imagine that you're a German citizen, and the year is 1940, and you are at a party in the city of Munich. And at this party, there are German bankers and industrialists and uh, artists and people of influence, that there are also generals uh, of the Waffen-SS and various officers of the Luftwaffe. And you are there as a believer in Jesus Christ. And one of these generals, about midway through the party, clicks his heels in the best Teutonic fashion, sticks out his arm and says, Heil Hitler! Hitler is Führer! And you as a believer in Jesus Christ, stand up and say in response, Heil Jesu, Jesu is Führer. Can you imagine just all of a sudden the pin-dropping quiet that would descend over that party? Because you've got conflicting claims to supreme lordship. On the one hand, Hitler. On the other hand, Jesus. And who is going to be honored here at this party? Can you also imagine how incredibly bold you would have to be? I mean, you have to have a spine made of rebar and reinforced concrete to do that, right? how incredibly bold you would have to be to stand up in that setting and proclaim that no, no, not Hitler, but Jesus is supreme. If you can imagine what that situation would be like, then you can imagine something of the setting in which Paul is going about the Roman Empire proclaiming that Jesus and not Caesar is Lord. You know, sometimes we get the idea when we read in the Scriptures, Jesus is Lord. We kind of read through that kind of casually and go, huh, Jesus is Lord. Yep, that means Jesus is God. And to acknowledge Jesus as Lord is, in fact, to acknowledge Him as God. But it's also to say that to Jesus is owed our supreme allegiance And that where we're in conflict between what the requirements of our government are and what the requirements of Jesus are, that we're going to obey Jesus. 
And in fact, this was the reason that Paul got himself arrested. If you remember the story from the book of Acts, where Paul is in Jerusalem and the Jewish leaders there get him in trouble with the Roman authorities because they say about him, he is proclaiming that there's a higher level of allegiance than to Caesar to this person called Jesus. And the Jews were traditionally granted a kind of an exemption from having to acknowledge Jesus in the way that other Roman citizens did. If, if you were an ordinary Roman citizen, you could worship all manner and type of gods or none that you wanted, but you had to acknowledge and pay homage to Caesar as one of them and as supreme above others. And you had to say that where your religion conflicts with the dictates of Caesar, that you will follow Caesar rather than God. And Christianity runs headlong into that idea and says, no. As Jesus taught, you do render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that belong to him alone. And as Paul begins preaching, initially he was protected because people sort of assumed Christianity is kind of one of these weird sects of Judaism that believes that the Messiah has come. And they were protected under the Jewish exemption that was given. And by the way, the only reason the Jews got an exemption on this is that they were so much trouble to maintain otherwise. Uh, That exemption ended in 70 A.D. with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Because the Jews would not acknowledge the lordship of Caesar. And Christianity begins to run into the same kinds of conflict that lead to the uh, Roman general Titus taking over. Uh, this nation of Israel. And when Paul writes the letter to the Philippians, he is writing a letter because he has gotten himself arrested for precisely the problem of saying that Jesus is Lord, even over the Roman government. And he's chained, in fact, to a Roman soldier every day. And if you can understand that background of that situation and what kind of tension and how that would just crackle every time he would preach, then you understand a little bit of the background of Philippians here as he is uh, speaking about what is, what's his situation. We're going to be in verse 12 down through the first half of verse 18. So let's, let's read it here together. Now I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we place ourselves willingly under your word. Father, your word alone is true. 
because you alone in all the world are true. And Father, this morning as we come to your word as part of our worship, we pray that you would show us by your Holy Spirit how we can line up with it and under it and obey it and follow it and to do your will in a greater way today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives, having heard your word here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The first point that I want to make here out of Paul's uh, message here in this section is that persecution produces powerful proclamation. I had a little fun with alliteration this week, I'm sorry. But persecution produces powerful proclamation. Uh, If you go around the world... Uh, and you know, in contrast to America, in America, there's not a whole lot of persecution for being a Christian. I mean, you can maybe have some people get sideways with you a little bit. Maybe you can have a boss or a coworker or a, a school uh, uh, friend or whatever give you a hard time because you're a believer. But the chances you're going to go to prison for it are, are somewhere between uh, vanishing and slim, right? Uh, the chances that you are ever going to lose your life for being a Christian in America are pretty remote, to say the least. But if you go around the world, what you see is that in the places where the gospel and Christians are persecuted, what you see in many cases is a great boldness in going ahead and preaching anyway. One of the great stories that I heard uh, recently about the persecuted church continuing to spread the gospel around the world comes from the country of Pakistan. If you know anything about Pakistan, you know that the people there, by and large, are not friends of the United States of America. And so it's very difficult for people who are Westerners to go in as missionaries. But God, in his great wisdom, is continuing to work, and he is sending missionaries out of the third world Uh, into places like Pakistan. And one of the places he is sending them from is Ethiopia, believe it or not. You don't think of Ethiopia as being a great mission-sending country, but they are sending missionaries into Pakistan. And recently there were two missionaries from Ethiopia who went into this village in Pakistan, and they met the, the brothers and sisters there, and they said, let's go preach. And the Pakistani brothers and sisters said, "Uh, you have to understand... (laughs) This is a little different from where you're from, maybe, but if if we preach the gospel here openly in this village square, they will imprison us. And the Ethiopian fellows looked at him and said, yeah, Uh uh-huh, we've been to prison already, let's go, get your stuff. (laughs) Okay, and they went, and within about two hours, here come the magistrates and the authorities to arrest them, and they do. But you know what the funny thing is? In the Quran, it says that Muhammad, when he fled from Mecca originally, fled to Ethiopia. And so if you ever find Ethiopians, you are to welcome them and give them whatever they ask. These Ethiopians start talking about the Quran. And we're from Ethiopia, and... Muhammad says you should show us hospitality and give us what we'd like. You know what? You're exactly right. And all of a sudden, they had an open door to preach the gospel in this village. 
Because persecution produces powerful proclamation. And God is at work. And Paul wants them to understand that just because he is in prison doesn't mean that God is imprisoned. The message that we carry out into the world really is a message of life and death. Of eternal life and death. And when you realize what the stakes really are, then whatever they might do to you on a on a temporal basis, what's the worst thing somebody can do to you? They can torture you and kill you, and they can lock you away, right? And then what? And then you go into the presence of the living God where they can't harm you anymore, where righteousness dwells, where you live face-to-face with the living God. And when you weigh that out on the balance, come out okay. Right? I did all right. I made a great swap on this one. Um, And that is why, by the way, one of the early church fathers, and his name was Tertullian, he has made a famous statement as he watched the church be persecuted up through his day in about the 200s A.D. He said, the blood of the martyrs is seed. In other words, we're just like dandelions. You can can chop us down, and it just spreads the seed wider, and we keep coming back. Why? Because the more that you persecute us, the more powerful our proclamation of the gospel message becomes. And verse 12 here, Paul says that is what is proved true to be be the case in, in, in his situation. Remember, Paul is the one who started the Philippian church about 10 years prior. And the Philippians are concerned about him. He's in prison. What's going to happen to our church? Uh, The guy who was the forming leader of our church is in prison. They're worried. Uh, What's going to happen? Uh, Paul's the greatest apostle that there is. Uh, At least 12 of the New Testament books, depending on on what you think about Hebrews, um, at least 12 of the New Testament books were written by Paul. He is a man who is attested by the Holy Spirit with power to do miracles, to speak God's word, to have his, his writings recorded as scripture. And he's in prison. And if he loses his court case, he's going to die. And the Philippians are going to worry are worried about him. And Paul says, don't worry. I'm still advancing the gospel even while I'm in prison. I'm still advancing the gospel. In fact, he says, look here. All of the palace guard have now heard the gospel. You could lock Paul up, but you couldn't shut him up. Because the thing that was at the heart of who Paul was as a person was the gospel. And so he, he, his attitude is basically this. If I'm freed outside of, the, outside of prison, I'm going to preach the gospel. And if they lock me up, great, i got a captive audience. <laughs> okay, uh, they, he, they, their regular practice with Paul was to, to have him chained night and day to a particular guard. Well, what are you going to do to pass the time? Play cards and share Jesus, okay? Um, that's what Paul did. And every, and every day, several times a day, they would switch out the guards. 
And, oh, man, fresh meat, here they are. Uh, you know, oh, your name's Claudius? Great, I'm Paul of Tarsus. Let me tell you why I'm in here. And he would tell them. And these guys, as they came in to guard Paul, and the palace guard, by the way, is the, is the contingent who would, who would look after the, the uh, Roman officials, even up including Caesar himself. And so uh, this is like the, the ancient equivalent of like somewhere between the FBI and the Secret Service that Paul is spending all his time with. Guys that have access to the highest levels of government. And Paul is sharing Jesus with them. Guess what's happening? Well, they're having one of two responses. One, they're saying, man, you're right. Jesus Christ, even though he was this this, uh, Palestinian peasant who was born in Bethlehem of Judea and lived in Nazareth and his dad was a carpenter even though there was nothing out of the ordinary about him in fact there was everything out of the ordinary about him he really was God in the flesh and they're turning to Jesus and placing their faith in him or they're doing this they're going oh man have you guarded Paul of Tarsus yet he is a case boy you got to get a load of this What's he tell? What's he tell you? Well, he told me all about this guy named Jesus from Nazareth, who uh, he says was born of a virgin, did a bunch of miracles. We crucified him under Pilate, and then he three days later, Paul says he got out of the grave, and, and then about forty days after that, ascended into heaven. Really, he does sound like a head case. But regardless, the gospel is going out through the whole palace guard, either because they believe it, and so they're spreading it to all their buddies, or because they think Paul is a nut, in which case they're telling all their buddies about that. But the gospel, regardless, is going out, and Paul says, even though God has seen fit to have me locked up, he's also given me this marvelous opportunity to share the gospel. And by the way, Just in case you're curious what the big overarching idea of Philippians is, what's Philippians about? Philippians is about joy in the midst of suffering. And Paul, one of the ways he finds joy is to look for how God is still working even in ratty circumstances. Would you like to be chained up night and day? Not me. But God is still working. And so Paul is just, he's excited for the opportunity he has for the gospel. Paul had the right attitude. He saw that every circumstance he was in was an opportunity for the gospel. If I have freedom, I'm free to preach the gospel. Though they might throw riots, though people might stone me and leave me for dead, though I might have to get out of town in a basket, as happened, then I'm still free to preach the gospel. Because what can man do to me? After they kill me, not much. If I'm imprisoned, captive audience, it's great stuff. He has the right attitude. He is looking for God to be at work in his circumstances. And by the way, that is still true today. Does God still work in and through difficult circumstances? You bet he does. 
Does God still ensure that persecution just continues to spread the message even further and wider? Yes, he does. Because when somebody is persecuted, what happens is is that the brothers in the Lord and the sisters are just encouraged to speak the word of God even more fearlessly. Because they go, if Paul was willing to go to prison for, for Jesus, I should be willing too. Because after all, consider what Jesus has done for me. You remember back in, uh, some of you actually will remember when this happened. Um, but even if you weren't around then, you know this story. In 1956, five graduates of Wheaton College went down to the country of Ecuador uh, to a people known as the Waldani. Uh, back then, they were not called the Waldani. They were called the Alka, which is a word that means the savage. They were so violent that no missionaries had ever made it in to, to share the gospel with them. And Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and some of the, some of the other guys that went down there to try to share the gospel with the Alka Indians... And just after they got there, they got speared to death. And then later, their wives went back in with their kids and shared the gospel with these people. And their story of even though we are persecuted, we are going to continue to share the gospel, even with the people who murdered our husbands. inspired for 20 years generations of Wheaton College graduates to go out into the world as missionaries sharing Jesus Christ. And in fact, we probably can't count the number of missionaries, not just from Wheaton, but from other places, who have heard the story of Jim Elliott or read Through, Great, through Gates of Splendor or seen the movie the end of the spear came out a couple years ago. Who have heard that and thought, I am willing to go, Lord, wherever you will send me. Because they understood that these, what these people laid down their lives for is still worth laying down your life for. And so persecution produced even more passionate proclamation. And in fact... The gospel can even conquer over mixed motives. You know, sometimes we think about difficulties that we have uh, with, the, with proclaiming the gospel as all being due to people outside the church. But sometimes you have difficulty with people inside the church uh, that are undermining your reputation or that are attacking you or... or belittling you or this kind of thing and that was happening in Paul's day and that and in fact he references it beginning in verse 15 um beginning in verse 15 down through verse first half of verse 18 Paul talks about these people because whenever there's persecution there's going to be two camps that arise there's going to be on the one hand a group of people who like Paul say I place no confidence in the flesh 
I'm probably going to die sooner or later, right? The, st- the stats are all in. Only Elijah got to go out in a chariot of fire. Uh, Enoch was not, and God took him. But the rest of us, you know, virtually 100% of people that are born on this earth die. And if I'm going to die anyway, I might as well die having boldly proclaimed the gospel. And if they kill me, they kill me, but I'm going to go down swinging. Paul says, better to go out in a blaze of glory. I'm paraphrasing here. Um, That's the revised slanted perversion. But um, uh, it's better to go out in a blaze of glory than to just timidly hide your faith under a rock and be unfaithful to the God who has called you into his marvelous light. Right? And so you're always going to have that group of people who are going to say, if I got to go, I'm going to take as many into the kingdom with me as I can. And then there are going to be always some other folks who say, you know, better a live dog than a dead lion. Dead men don't preach the gospel, Paul. And as much as you are heroic, you're also foolish. It'd be better if you kept a little bit quiet and didn't draw too much attention to us who are in the church because if you give us time, which we will have if we don't die, we will be able to share the gospel a little bit at a time with our neighbors and our friends. And we will probably reach, over time, more people than you do in your short burst of you know flame across the sky. And remember, Paul, the Christian life is a marathon, and sharing the gospel is a marathon. It's not the 100-yard dash here. We don't have to get there all at once. Understand your passion, but cool your jets, man. And there are always these two camps that arise. And the people that Paul encouraged to, to preach more boldly by his arrest fit into these two camps. And Paul says that there were people who identified with him who said, yeah, man, let's go out. Let's be like a comet. You know, it just burns across the sky and gives light. Uh, and there are people who went out for, from, encouraged by his example, who went out boldly to proclaim the gospel out of love for Jesus. And that's how he identifies them. The latter do so in love knowing I am put here for the defense of the gospel. But there were some others who said, you know, Paul should really stop shooting his mouth off so much. And they started preaching the gospel too, but not just so that people could hear the good news. They started preaching the gospel, Paul said, uh, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in change. And imagine, you know, just using my kind of my sanctified imagination, I imagine the argument kind of went like this. Well, there he goes that Paul again. He's always stirring up trouble everywhere he goes. If he could just pipe down a little, we could get a lot of good ministry done. We could get a lot of good evangelistic ministry done. Uh, and I understand that evangelism is part of God's plan, and Paul has been doing evangelism, and that's good. But God also tells us to be wise 
about how we go about things. And Paul, you know, you could be a little bit more wise. I mean, it almost seems like it's partly your fault you even wound up in prison. And you see what they're doing? They're building up their own ministry at the expense of Paul's reputation. And they're preaching the gospel, but they're doing so out of mixed motives. Out of not just a love for Jesus, but also a desire to see themselves exalted at Paul's expense. And that's pretty low when you really think about it. But Paul says the gospel conquers even mixed motives. And look at his attitude. This is verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Now, notice what Paul does not say. He does not say that it doesn't matter what a person says about Jesus as long as they talk about Jesus. Okay? He does not say that. And so don't hear him say that. Because it's a popular thought in our day that, well, as long as somebody talks about Jesus, well, they're on our side of the fence, right? But I'll assure you that the Mormon Jesus, or the Jehovah's Witness Jesus, or the Buddhist Jesus, or the Muslim Jesus, or the Hindu Jesus, or whatever kind of other belief system Jesus, or even the liberal Christianity Jesus, is different from the Jesus that's in this book, and who really existed, and who really lives today. And so Paul is not saying it doesn't matter as long, what someone says about Jesus as long as they say it about Jesus. He does think that it does matter which Jesus you're preaching about. But when he, what he is saying is this, that it doesn't matter if my reputation is ruined if Jesus is preached. And I would rather these people had good motives for their preaching the gospel than partly to preach the gospel and partly to tear down my reputation at you know to build up their own but if they're going to if they're going to tear down my reputation and build up their own and preach the gospel I'd rather they preach the gospel if they can't do it right at least preach the gospel and I think his attitude is remarkable uh, there Because i got to tell you, if it was my reputation on the line, I'm not sure I'd have the same attitude. But let me also say this, that this passage really encourages me. Because whether you're a pastor like me, or whether you're a transmission specialist, or an engineer, or a hairdresser, or an accountant, or a homemaker, or a backhoe operator, or whatever it is that you do. Sometimes, if we're honest and we take a good look in the mirror of God's Word, we see that we do ministry out of mixed motives too. Not just because we love and and want to serve Jesus, but also because we want to feel important. Or because it makes us look spiritual in front of other people whose opinion we value. Or simply because rather than love, we serve Jesus out of duty. But the encouraging thing about this 
and Paul gives us this, is that the gospel is so powerful because God is so powerful that it conquers and continues to work even over our mixed, questionable, goofy, sometimes sinful motives. I find that tremendously encouraging. And look at what Paul says. He says, the important thing is that in every way Christ is preached. Paul's critics are partly right, after all. You know, if Paul had been a little more careful, he probably wouldn't have gone to jail. I mean, God sent a prophet with a message from the Holy Spirit to say, Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound like this and taken off to prison. And it's always mystified me while Paul went ahead and went. But apparently he felt that it was still God's call in his life to go. And so he went, and he got himself arrested. And he's wound up in prison. He's been shipwrecked. He's gotten all the way to Rome. He's on trial for his life. If he, He's got two choices, either acquittal or death. And based on all that's happened to Paul, I mean, you can read the account of all the stuff he went through in 2 Corinthians about how many times he got flogged, how many times he was beaten with sticks, how many times he was out in the open ocean, how many times he was stoned and left for dead, all these kinds of things that have happened to him on a human, and now he's in prison on trial for his life. And on a human level, there's not a lot of reason to rejoice. If you look at Paul's life, it's been, a, it's been uh, unpaved and 40 miles out of town for most of his post-conversion existence. And yet he says, because of this, I rejoice. Because of what? Because the message of the gospel continues to go forth no matter what happens to me. If you cut Paul open, what you will find is a beating heart that bleeds for the gospel and it spreads. And he says, no matter what happens to me, if I die, the gospel goes forth stronger. If I go to prison, the gospel is still going out. If people preach Christ out of mixed motives and they destroy my reputation in the process, I don't care as long as the gospel goes out. And because of that, I can rejoice. I can rejoice even in difficult circumstances. Years ago, there was an Austrian-Jewish psychiatrist uh, who found himself imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp called Theresienstadt, which is now in the Czech Republic. And his name was Viktor Frankl. And he uh, witnessed on a daily basis all kinds of suffering, oppression, and death. And he wrote a book uh, years later about his experiences that he called Man's Search for Meaning. And he said, you know, the last of human freedoms is the freedom to choose your attitude in a given set of circumstances. And he's exactly right. And what I want us to see from this passage is that that is still true. If someone imprisons you, beats you, flogs you, stones you, and leaves you for dead, 
no matter what happens to you, you can still choose your attitude in that set of circumstances. And Paul chooses his. And his attitude is, no matter what happens to me, as long as God is still at work spreading the gospel, life is good, and we have an opportunity to rejoice. And whatever circumstances I'm in, as long as I'm not dead, I get to preach the gospel. They can take everything away from you except for your ability to decide how you're going to respond. They can take away your right to choose what and whether you're going to eat, where and whether you're going to sleep, what kind of work you're going to have, when you will go to bed, when you will get up, what kind of clothes you will have or even if you will have clothes. Everything can be taken away from you except this, your ability to still trust God in the midst of your circumstances and to rejoice in the opportunity he's given to talk about him. Paul is not in a concentration camp, but his circumstances are very far from pleasant, and it would have been easy to be depressed and bitter. And to feel that God had abandoned you. You know, it would have been easy to look up at heaven and, if you're Paul and say, God, you know, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but I, I've been serving you pretty devotedly and I've kind of gotten abused in the process. Would you like me to run through the list? And I'm probably going to lose my head over this. I don't, not so you've noticed or cared. But that's not Paul's attitude. Paul's attitude is, God has put me through what he has put me through to enable me to preach the gospel more boldly. And in that, Paul offers us a couple of lessons for us. A couple of things that challenge us and challenge me. First one is this, what is the source of my joy? What is the source of my joy? You know, as I said, the theme of the book of Philippians is joy in the midst of circumstances that are bad. So what's the source of my joy? What is the source of my joy? What am I finding happiness in? Um, Paul's joy comes from knowing Christ and seeing the gospel spread. Where's yours come from? Where's mine come from? Does it come in having a good family, having a job that pays well, having a home like I want, having a new ski-doo, new motorcycle, new convertible, you know, where's a new shotgun if you're me? Okay, um, uh, where does my source of joy really lie? Does it lie in Christ and him alone? Or does it lie somewhere else? If it lies anywhere else, then when your circumstances change, your joy will disappear with it. But if it's Christ, in the worst of circumstances, you can still rejoice. Number two, what is stopping me from being bold in sharing Christ? 
Here in the United States of America, we have the most freedom that any nation has ever had to do whatever we want. Except, apparently, drive a non-fuel-efficient car. We don't have that freedom anymore. But anyway, we have tremendous freedom to do everything else, right? Okay? We have tremendous freedom to do everything else, including the most important thing of all, which is to preach the gospel. And yet many of us, like a lot of our other freedoms, we don't make use of them. We don't make use of our freedom to preach the gospel. Paul is in prison, chained up to a guard. And he is using the freedom he has, even in that circumstance, to preach the gospel. And if Paul can preach the gospel as a prisoner, I'll assure you that I can preach the gospel as a free man. And share with my friends and neighbors and family and co-workers. And the checkout lady at the grocery store. If I get that much time. What is stopping me from doing that? It isn't, it isn't threat of persecution, surely. So what is stopping me? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, 